Hello and welcome to the Ellen Finance Club CareerCast. In this podcast, we take a look at the potential careers opened up by pursuing your finance education. I'm your host, James Dutton, and today we'll be talking with James Smallwood of RGA in St. Louis. If you enjoy the podcast or are interested in learning more about finance, consider joining the Ellen Finance Club on Wugo, LinkedIn, or WeChat. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. I'm here with James Smallwood of RGA in St. Louis. And, and James, uh, can you take a minute and just tell us a little bit about your background and a little bit about your career? Yeah, sure thing. So um, I uh, I began my career pretty well right in the middle of the financial crisis, um, working at Goldman Sachs in New York City um, as a sell-side fixed income analyst. Um, so I covered... Um, you know, again, the corporate bond market, uh, which encompasses investment grade, high yield um, as far as bonds, but also credit default swaps as well. Um, and I looked primarily at the automotive industry. So, you know, as you can imagine with Ford and, and GM uh, and Chrysler, it was, uh, you know, a pretty fast paced environment. Um, also covered a, a lot of other industrial companies in the aerospace and defense and um, you know transportation and, and rails and uh, just general diversified industrials. Um, that's where I began my career. Um, I'm originally from the St. Louis area, so I wanted to return to the area at, at some point in time. Um, and a local firm, Nissa Investment Advisors, um, was looking to build out their credit research team and uh and it lined up pretty well um time wise i had just spent you know close to three years um at goldman sachs and was looking to make a move and so i found out about the opportunity um ended up going to nissa investment advisors um as an analyst on the buy side and you know covered the same industries and also picked up several other industries um, you know, as a credit analyst, um, eventually became a senior credit analyst, uh, worked there for about five years. And then um, I was hired away from there by RGA, who was looking for um, a senior credit analyst. And um, that was about six years ago. So I've, I've been at RGA for a little over six years now, um, you know, really enjoy it. And um, in addition to having uh, my own coverage. Um, I, I also lead the entire, um, you know, public uh, credit research team, uh, which is where I am now. So that's that's just my my general overall background of my career so far. Okay, and could you maybe very quickly just kind of define the the scope of credit analysis, just for those who are maybe unfamiliar or, or interested in pursuing various areas of finance? Sure. So. Um, it's it's very interesting, um, you know, for for corporate credit, um, you know, as 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 an analyst, you're you're basically recommending um, bonds for you know either purchase or sale um, based on valuation. So it's pretty similar to like if you were an equity research analyst and you were covering a stock and you thought you know the stock was worth you know, 60 bucks a share and it was trading at 40 bucks a share and you put a buy rating on it. It's similar for corporate bonds. The only difference there is corporate bonds don't have like an intrinsic fair value in the same way that, um, you know, equities might. 
it's it's far more dependent upon you know the interest rate environment um the overall macro environment of corporate credit you know how the sector trades and then um kind of where it should trade within that so it's it's a relative value sort of analysis that you have to do rather than intrinsic uh value Got it. And so I want to ask you a couple questions here about your career, but maybe before I do that, uh, do you have any disclaimers, you know, just letting people know that this is, this is your opinion and not anything from any of the companies I'm about to ask you about? Yes. And I appreciate you uh, reminding me of that. So yes, I mean, I am, uh, I am an employee of, of RGA, um, but you know, the opinions and viewpoints expressed on this call um, in no way, shape, or form represent that of RGA itself. Uh, these are merely, you know, thoughts um, from from myself, uh, you know, Jim Smallwood. So, um, again, uh, not not a, uh, a in any way, shape, or form reflective of a company view um, or opinion. Just myself. Fantastic. So I, I want to maybe touch. So you started at Goldman moved back to St. Louis. And I, I talked with you before this call a little bit. I'd like to really kind of bring this back up, but could you mm-hmm. maybe address for students looking at different entry points to their career, the benefits of starting out at a bulge bracket versus starting out with maybe a smaller firm and, and some of uh, you know the considerations that we should have when we're looking at you pursuing a job with a Goldman versus pursuing a job with someone like Nissa Investments? Sure. I mean, it really comes down to two things, primarily. Um, the pace of the environment uh, with which you work in, um, it's just a completely different culture being um, part of an investment bank versus being part of, um, you know, an independent, um, you know, buy side firm. You know, that's that's part of it. Um and really, the other part of it is is exposure. So, I mean, when I began my career at Goldman, it was very quickly, you know, they expected a lot of you. So you you had to ramp up on your um, sectors very quickly. Um, you know, you had access to some of the brightest minds in the industry sitting all around you. <laughs> and... Um, and there's really something to be said about being able to tap into that. And one of the benefits early on in your career is you can ask any question you want. And for anyone starting off, whether it's at Goldman Sachs or, you know, or, um, <laughs> you know, a bulge bracket firm or whether you start at a smaller investment firm, uh, there's really only one time in your career where you're allowed to ask you know, any question you want. (laughs) So, you know, I would take advantage of that and just be as intellectually curious as you possibly can be um, and and really just try to learn and leverage the environment around you. Um, And that was one of the perks for me beginning my career um, at Goldman was, again, like early on, I was able to meet with management teams. I was able to observe my boss meet with you know, CEOs and CFOs and really try to, you know, kind of learn the line of questioning um, and how to ask the right questions, um, you know, and and just to understand 
uh, you know, how the industry worked. And when you're able to also uh, be in an environment where you work with sales, you know, you work with trading, you work in some cases, you work with the syndicate desk, which is part of the investment banking arm, um, you know, to do deals. Uh, you just get a lot of exposure and you really get a very comprehensive picture of how how the market works and how the market functions. Whereas at a smaller buy side shop, uh, you may not get that early on. Um, so again, it's it's pros and cons. I mean, you know, you're also talking, working, you know, 80 plus hours a week, <clears throat> you know, which is what I did when I started off versus at a more uh, balanced, I'll say, uh, you know, pace at a, um, you know, at a, at a smaller, smaller investment farm or investment firm. I mean, okay. And then a question I think I maybe should have asked first, even so taking a step even further back, who do you think, or I guess what type of candidate does a credit analyst or analyst job kind of really apply to? And then on top of that, what does it look like as you go from that entry level role into the more of a senior level role? Sure. So, um, being a credit analyst is very unique, um, because you have to wear multiple different hats at different points in time. At the end of the day, what you're doing is you're lending money to a company that is promising to pay you back at some point in the future. And the strength of that promise is governed by what is written, <laughs> by lawyers um, in a contract known as an indenture. And so you really have to learn and understand all of the legal nuances to lending money to companies. Um, So that's part of it. So you have to be part lawyer. Um, You have to be able to think dynamically in terms of, uh, I guess, relativity rather than absolute. Because again, like I said, it's not a, uh, there's no intrinsic value for a company's bonds. There's an intrinsic value of what a firm is worth. Um, And when a company gets into, you know, I'll call it distress, um, that starts to matter a bit more. So you have to be kind of a quasi uh, legal analyst, uh, plus equity analyst, plus fixed income analyst, kind of all rolled into one. Um, I personally find it fascinating today. I found it very overwhelming, uh, when I just started my career. So that's, that's something that is very unique, um, to credit research as opposed to equity research. Um, now as to your second question, the difference between uh, a more junior credit analyst and a senior credit analyst, I mean, it really comes down to, understanding and knowledge. So when you're a junior analyst, you know, you don't really know much about how credit works, how to ask the right questions, how to even think about it. So a lot of it is kind of building up both specialized knowledge of the industries and companies that you're covering, but also a framework, you know, an intellectual framework of how do I even think about credit? Um, Because if you've never done it before, it's going to take you a long period of time before things finally start to click in terms of, you know, how, how to think about things. 
And then when you become a senior credit analyst, the implicit assumption is that you already have that base knowledge. Um, and then you're able to generate ideas. And those ideas, um, you know, generally speaking, should produce alpha over a large enough sample size. Perfect. And, and now, so any of the questions I ask you here, if, if it's too detailed about the company, just let me know and I can move on. Sure. So mm-hmm. uh, just at a very high level, what is RGA? And then on top of that, what is reinsurance? Sure. So, I mean, RGA is a life reinsurer. Um, traditionally, that is what they do. Um, but a reinsurance company uh is much like a an insurance company as you would commonly know it and what reinsurance companies do is they have deals in place with other insurance companies that are looking to offload risk so for instance if uh if and they're known as direct writers so that would be like a you know a prudential or a metlife or northwestern mutual like so these are the companies that directly write insurance and they face the customer, which is me or you or anyone else looking to buy life insurance. And, you know, one of the things about insurance is you want to have pools of risk and they can vary by, you know, demographics, by geography, you know, a whole host of different characteristics. And if a company becomes too exposed to any one of those factors, they say, you know what, I really want to keep writing business um, in this line or this vertical, but I think, you know, from a firm perspective, we're a little too heavy. So we want to offload some of that risk. And that's where the reinsurance companies come into play. Um, So that's, that's simplistically, again, you know, what RGA does is incredibly complicated. Um, in terms of how we structure our deals and transactions. And there are experts with way more knowledge of that than, um, than myself um, in terms of all the nuances of how that's done, how they're structured from a legal perspective um, and everything else. So that is, that is a big part of what RGA does. Um, and then we also assume investment risk too um, of different products, different financial products. Uh, annuities and, and, you know, different things like that, um, where there is a, uh, a component of, you know, actuarial um, risk as to how long, you know, a person lives. So uh, again, a very high level, um, but that is what RGA does. Now where RGA investments comes into play is, you know, you have all of these liabilities, which are future payouts or expected payouts, I should say, because nobody knows exactly when they're going to be paid out. Um, you know, a pandemic, uh, you know, just hit. And so, you know, a lot of people unfortunately died. And for life insurance companies, it's, you know, you're baking in expectations of in all likelihood, this person is likely to live until, you know, they're 80 years old or whatever, and then a pandemic hits and you get a whole slew of people that end up, you know, passing away much sooner. So what happens is, is you have to pay out the benefits earlier, but not only that, you haven't been able to capture, um, you know, returns on your investments that were supposed to earn you returns and compound over that span of time. 
So again, there's an uncertain liability, you know, set. And what we try to do is we try to basically match our assets with our liabilities. And the best way to do that is if you have if you have a reasonably assured expectation of, you know, again, they we're talking in probabilities here, but if you if you can model out what your future liabilities are are likely to look like and you're looking for instruments to hedge that and to earn a sufficient rate of return between now and then. Corporate bonds and fixed income securities are your best bet because you don't have any mismatch in duration, right? They're earning steady compounded returns. Um, you know, default risk is very low. Um, and so there's a regulatory body which oversees all of this. Um, and there are, you know, various treatments as to how to handle mismatches and either quality of the assets relative to the liabilities, uh, duration mismatches, etc. Um, again, I'm just talking in general terms here, but hopefully that gives you a, a fair idea of the industry and how specifically, you know, investments fits, fits in within that. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. And you, you bring up risk and my mind immediately jumps to derivatives. Could, could you maybe just touch on at least the type of products that are used within the industry and not necessarily specific to RGA? <laughs> yeah, when you're in the, when you're in the topic of derivatives, um, there is a whole host of different, uh, you know, sorts of areas you can go. I mean, you know, credit default swaps are probably the most common. So you can you can run what's known as a replication strategy, um, which is essentially you would layer on credit default swaps uh, while owning risk-free bonds. And you could sort of synthetically create um, a corporate bond, you know, through that means, you know, from a credit research perspective, that's primarily, um, you know, a, a derivative instrument that, you know, we would, we would utilize depending on the geography with which we're writing new business. You know, the Japanese business, for instance, you know, utilizes credit default swaps, um, and, um, you know, to run a replication strategy. And I believe our Canadian business does to a certain extent as well. Okay. And then just a, a last question here about RGA, just for students that so far to this point, it's been pretty interesting. What are some of the different roles besides credit analysis that maybe students that are interested in derivatives, interested in investing? What are some of the, I guess, just additional roles within RGA that maybe students could look at? Sure. So we have a, there's a structured securities desk. Um, that's much like credit research, except in the, the structured securities um, segment of the market. There is, uh, there's trading, um, which is primarily flow trading, not, not prop trading. I got to make that clear. You know, trading is more about an analyst has an idea. He goes to a trader. The trader has, you know, all of the uh, relationships across Wall Street to be able to um, basically buy bonds at the best price, you know, and so it's a, it's a relationship-driven business, and uh, and they manage that relationship. Um, then there's the portfolio managers. 
and the portfolio managers interact with um, the business units. So they're kind of the liaison between investments and the rest of RGA. And then there's also a team um, called Investment Solutions. And what they do is they are um, sort of the, I guess you'd call it BD, you know, business development arm of investments where they are out, um, you know, looking for new business. And, uh, and with insurance, as you can imagine, old business is constantly rolling, is, is rolling off of the books. So you're either winning new business um, or you're shrinking. <laughs> so that's just the nature of the business. And that's what they do. And so what they do is they, they structure portfolios. Um, you know, they model portfolios that are based on, uh, you know, a whole combination of factors, uh, you know, duration and quality and yield targets, etc. Uh, to try to make, um, you know, a, a deal price work. And it's a competitive process. So they'll be working with investment bankers trying to win new business and will be competing, um, you know, obviously with other firms for the same business. And then there's, um, you know, security operations. Um, so they they handle more of the back office, the trade booking, the record keeping, et cetera. Um, you know, those are, those are primarily the main uh, main groups within investments in terms of relative size. Okay. And then last more or less professional question for you, and then we can move on to some of the more interesting market topics here. But sure. How crucial would you say obtaining the CFA was to your career? Um, I would say it's pretty high. Um, it really depends. So on the sell side, like if you were to work for um, an investment bank, um, they don't really prioritize it as much because they recognize that, you know, you're working a ton of hours and your time is probably going to be better spent learning and getting better at your job. And that's going to be more value to the firm than studying CFA curriculum, much of which will not apply to your direct role. Um, However, on the buy side, um, it's a bit different because, you know, there's, a, there's somewhat of a marketing element to it where uh, it just looks good on paper if a lot of your analysts or portfolio managers have the CFA designation. Um, helps with, uh, you know, shouldn't say it helps with, um, it's hard to isolate any one given factor. But it just looks better on paper when you're competing to win new assets and um, and things like that. And it does um, it does command a level of respect of uh, you know a certain level of knowledge um, you know within within your industry. So I mean I would say it it definitely helps, but um, you know it's not the end all be all. And to be honest, I mean you depending on the role that you're in it may not be worth you know your, your time quite frankly um so it really depends on uh where you land uh career wise and just how much the firm prioritizes it or not i mean I, I'll, I'll be pretty candid and you know 
I learned a lot from the CFA curriculum um, on a theoretical basis. And that's kind of how it has to be taught, right? Because they're asking you questions and you have to provide answers and they have to be able to grade it somehow. So it's it's a very sort of kind of linear, correct, incorrect, you know, sort of, sort of thought process. But as you'll find when you operate in markets, um, it's not as black and white. Hey, there's a lot of shades of gray. There's a lot of... Uh, equations and things that break down in practice in some cases. So um, it's, it is helpful though, I will say, because there, there's a lot, um, there's a lot that you learn that just provides a solid base and you can build off of that base in your area of specialization. Awesome. Thank you for that. And, and that kind of concludes the more career focused question. So then for the listeners here, I wanted mm-hmm. to try to do a little bit different of a format where it's not purely job focused. And there's a, a section where kind of ask some of the club members what they would want to know if they got to talk to a senior credit analyst. So there's a few topics here that I wanted to bring up. If you feel like you know nothing or maybe not have anything great to say about it, we can kind of skip skip around a little bit. But I guess just to start here, so real estate prices, as you know, are definitely on the rise. A lot to do with just the increase of cheap debt or just availability, uh, excuse me, availability of cheap debt. Do you see kind of a, a scenario where maybe there is going to be a relaxation in lending standards similar to what we saw in 2009? Or, or do you think we've learned our lesson and, and hopefully that won't be a problem again? Um, I personally think we've learned our lessons. Um, if you go through the process of trying to buy a property Uh, The amount of documentation that you have to provide to lenders um, to get access to financing these days compared to how it was back then, it's just night and day difference. So I think the underwriting standards are still very, very strong, largely as a function of documentation. So I know the temptation is always to think that... uh, markets will mean revert at some point and you know because prices have risen as dramatically as they have that you know at some point there'll be a reckoning um you know i i think markets always will operate in cycles um but i do not see a another you know financial crisis on the horizon um from the perspective of of the real estate market i just think there's way too many rules and regulations in place that um that that just won't won't happen in the same way i mean because back then you basically had you know tons of people that were able to have access to way more credit than they had any business having access to and that allowed the market to really prop up. Now, the credit that people have access to is based on their earnings and ability to pay it back, as opposed to, well, if the person can't pay it back, it doesn't matter because, you know, prices only go up. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's a completely different environment. Yeah, the, the prices only go up part, I would say, might have me a little stressed out because I feel like I'm about a year or two away from looking to buy a house. And so far, at least in St. Louis, and I know obviously everywhere, all I've seen is housing prices go up. So I'm hoping that kind of stabilizes a little bit. And I'm just wondering if 
if it really is just a function of interest rates or is there maybe some outside factors that you think could affect the housing crisis here? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a whole host of different factors. I mean, uh, I think uh, interest rates is certainly a component. Um, you know, I think what's going to be interesting is since COVID, um, you know, you have a lot of a lot of people concentrated in these big cities. And now that you have these flexible work arrangements, you know, there's probably a lot of people that say, hey, you know, cost of living is a lot cheaper outside of these major cities. And I get more house. I get, you know, there's there's reasons for a lot of people to want to kind of sprawl out a bit. So I think that's part of it, too. Um, but also, I think the bigger component is the amount of assets that central banks own and what that forces people to do as a result. Now, what I mean by that is, you know, ordinarily, um, you know, you would have money created and it kind of goes back into the markets, right? So you issue debt, you know, to build, you know, this public works project, or you issue debt to pay these benefits to certain people. And that money ends up going back into the markets because it ends up in someone's bank account. They spend it, you know, so on and so forth. Well, you know, the banks end up buying the debt that was created. Now, the issue now that we have is central banks, I mean, at least in the United States, right, the Federal Reserve now owns north of 30% of, you know, GDP, which is huge. And and that number used to be less than 20% just a couple of years ago. So what that means is you basically have all of this debt that was monetized, debt that was in the system issued by corporates, you know, to a very small extent corporates because the corporate part of the, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is actually quite small. Most of it is, you know, federal, you know, uh, governmental debt. And, um, and you have cash that's basically injected into the financial markets in place of that. But the problem is, is, you know, the investors who sold their bonds to the Fed and now have cash have to put that cash to work someplace else. And so you have this crowding effect where now it's corporate bonds used to be, you know, the place to be. And now they're like, okay, well, now we're going to start looking at other asset classes. We're going to start looking at high yield. We're going to start looking at real estate. So you have a new buyer base that is entering into the market that traditionally was just mom and pop. But now you have people buying up homes and looking to rent them out. And so I think a lot of it is just a function of both interest rates as well as a crowding out effect of public markets and people just looking for different avenues of being able to generate a fixed income like return and housing is perfect for that. So um, I think, I think that's a, that's a big component of it too. Yeah. I want to touch on one point there. So you mentioned high yields and just kind of that, basically that chase for yield of dollars. So what exactly needs to happen to the point where 
you know, high yields actually become high yield again. Cause I know, you know, I have a few bonds in, in, in the kind of the high yield space and it's at like four and a half percent. I wouldn't really consider that high yield yet. It's a pretty risky asset still. So, you know, what's going to have to change for corporate bonds to fill that gap that they just aren't filling anymore and for high yields to kind of get pushed back up to more of a historical average? That's a good question. Um, I think it would have to be a bit of an unraveling of the status quo for that to for that to happen, um, because what you've had the last several decades is an environment where interest rates have gone lower and lower and lower perpetually. Now, there's a lot of different factors driving that. Um, demographics is a key one. As people get older, they, you know, they <clears throat> allocate less and less to equity markets and more and more to fixed income as they transition closer and closer to retirement. So you can look at the average age, you know, within our country and, you know, you can track that over time. And because the demographic is aging, there's more natural demand for fixed income. So that's one component, right? The other component is the Federal Reserve um, actually physically going out there and purchasing bonds at a clip that is historically unprecedented. Um, And you have disinflationary pressures that have been in part of, you know, a part of you know, just this paradigm for the last several decades. And, you know, predominantly what I mean by that is technology, um, you know, drives down inflation. Um, You're able to do more with less, right? And globalization. So your input costs are lower too, because you're able to tap into sources of labor as well as raw materials etc in different parts of the world where you can you know have lower costs so those two phenomena it's a combination of all of those combined that have really led to this environment of just secularly lower and lower and lower interest rates now when you say what would it take to have just have yields go higher um you'd have to have an upending of that status quo so you would either have to have less globalization which is what we're starting to see now with the rise of nationalism um so at the margin the globalization trend is starting to reverse it's in the early stages i mean you you get a little bit of that with the the trade war with with china um, from the previous administration um you know you have that technology is continuing aging demographics are continuing the federal reserve is continuing to purchase at an unprecedented clip however inflation is starting to pick up now this was the first time um you know in decades that the united states federal government issued a bunch of debt and directly gave it to people (laughs) and that changes the dynamic quite a bit um you know you had supply chain disruptions which many people thought were that many people expected this all to be transitory and this would all be gone by now and we'd be back to the old environment fact of the matter is we're not you look at the most recent you know federal reserve beige book and you know the vast majority of employers are expecting substantial price increases over the course of the next year 
right? And, and you, can, you can look at all the data and analyze what's happening. And that has changed. That has shifted. And, you know, part of the issue with this, and this is where it gets interesting, is if the general population believes that inflation is real and it's here to stay, it will because it becomes, it, it's kind of like letting a genie out of the bottle. If people expect inflation to be higher, they're going to pull forward purchasing today, which is only going to drive prices higher and it just feeds on itself. And this is the reaction function that directly influences what the Federal Reserve is going to do with monetary policy. So, I mean, obviously they say it's inflation and employment. And obviously they want, you know, unemployment to keep moving lower. But inflation, they've kind of ignored for a long period of time here now, just saying it was transitory. Now, if it's not, um, you could actually see interest rates at some point begin to move up um, from that because the Federal Reserve at some point might have to have to tighten policy um, in a more meaningful way. And um, but the flip side of that is. If they do that, the implications are that future economic growth is will go down, right? Because there's less stimulus um, and investors might de-risk. So you might actually have a flight to quality, meaning people will be dumping stocks and other riskier assets and going back into assets like corporate bonds, because relatively speaking, they're pretty safe. They don't have high default rates or anything. Um, so all that's to say, it's really hard to, for me to envision an environment where um, yields meaningfully are allowed to go higher. It would just it would cause a lot of pain to the entire system. I've got a couple follow up questions for you here and mm-hmm. only a couple more in risk before maybe we move on to just a slightly different topic. But mm-hmm. the first one that I can think of is, is kind of one of like my favorite presidential type questions, which is, hey, if I give you a magic wand, how would you fix this? So I'm curious, if you had the economic magic wand, what would maybe be the thing that you think you could change that would be the most helpful? Would you increase money supply, decrease money supply? Would you just completely unwind the Fed balance sheet? What do you think might be kind of the the almost, it seems like the simplest fix, even though obviously there's nothing simple in the financial markets, but what would you like to see done? Well, so... That's an interesting question. With financial markets, uh, you can either increase liquidity or decrease liquidity, meaning, you know, that's that's really all the Federal Reserve can do. Um, the real problem, in my opinion, and it depends whether you're talking about markets or not, but I do think markets are related. Um, I, I think it all begins on the political front. I, I really, I really do. And I don't want to get political on this podcast um, but I think, I think much of the issues that we're seeing are, are more political than, and that feeds into the, you know, economic, uh, you know, disparities and everything else that we see. Um, I mean, if it were, if it were me, I think I, I personally am of the belief that, uh, we've probably taken things a bit too far in terms of easing policy. Um, 
you know, one of the things, uh, you know, that I was hopeful for, um, and again, I don't want to get too political on, uh, on this podcast, but one of the things I was hopeful for with COVID and it didn't end up playing out was, you know, I was hoping that it would, it would unite the country. It would bring people together. It would in a lot of ways, correct a lot of the excess that had been created by the markets. So what you have is, you know, markets that have gone nowhere but up parabolically. Um, but at the same time, you know, only a small percentage of the population participates in that upside because they own financial assets. And, um, you know, and then the other larger swath of society does not. And so, I mean, I actually uh, paradoxically view a correction, a meaningful correction, as possibly not a bad thing. Because if you think about who, you know, who would be kind of bearing the brunt of that, it's generally speaking, probably most of the people that could afford to because they own a lot of financial assets. Um, and again, I don't want to get, you know, political, um, but I do think that policy, monetary policy specifically has, has gone a bit too far. And I think it's created a ton of imbalances within society that are just compounded by politics as well. Good. And actually, I, I know I said I only have one more, but I think I have mm-hmm. a follow up with that as well. So you're know, talking about a market correction, I agree the brunt would be felt by the people or would be kind of more by the people that could afford to to lose a bit of assets. But then I think you you still run into, you know, CEOs, their their goal is shareholder return. So we've seen mm-hmm. this nonstop, like you said, parabolic increase. Do, do you think though that there could be an issue where we see a correction and kind of similar to 2001, similar to 2007, instead of saying, you know what, that needed to happen, but let's keep running business as usual. There's almost this massive overreaction by leadership to cut costs to get share prices right back up to where, again, the the lower class, middle class feels it much, much more harshly than those that, as you said, could, again, not to be political, but could potentially mm-hmm. afford to lose a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a good question. That's always that's always the uh, the paradox, right? I mean, it's a hypothetical scenario and it really depends what the trigger of that would be um and how companies would react i mean if if a company's share price was halved right but they still were a profit making enterprise um it would just simply be a a matter of the multiple correcting as opposed to an earnings problem you know what i mean so like if you look at um I mean, there's different components, right, of what has led to the increase in markets over the the span of time that we're talking about. Like margins have improved a lot, you know, obviously because of globalization and technology, which we've already discussed. And then there's multiple expansion, which is just all of this money has to go somewhere within the system. Um, And so with interest rates going lower, cap rates going down, like, you know, multiples expand as a result of that. So if it were to be more of a reset in terms of multiples, um, you know, that, like I said, there probably would be some pain that would be felt. 
for sure because asset values would come down. Um, and, you know, earnings probably would to a certain extent too. So it's very difficult to handicap how that would end up kind of you know, playing out. I think the the fact of the matter is nobody wants to see, right? And uh, and that makes sense. Um, you know, we've gone so far down this road, you can't reverse now. Um, I mean, it only goes one way. So I, I think what we're most likely to see is just more and more and more of the same. And you know, uh, the Western world will all go the way of Japan. Okay, got it. So now I can I can move on to that last question I had that back in my mind instead of belaboring the point here. But th- I thought those were really interesting topics. So I appreciate you expanding mm-hmm. on that as much as you did. Uh, so just still in the in the realm of credit, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about ESG in classes, and in this summer during my internship, there was nonstop talk about ESG. Have you worked with green bonds or or anything like that? And then kind of as a follow up, how do you see ESG? shaping the public debt markets is it going to come to a point where not only is debt based upon your credit worthiness but also i guess your social or governance worthiness do you, do you see kind of a world where that happens or is that maybe still too far out in the future that you're just not quite sure yet so rga does own green bonds um you know we we own quite a few of them and um <clears throat> you know to answer you know your other question Yes. I mean, ESG is a huge topic right now. Um, It is a very, very difficult topic uh, because there are so many different definitions. There are so many standards, um, you know, ways of measuring um, that, you know, it's really it's really in an interesting place right now, because what you've had was you know, a lot of investors interested in ESG, a lot of people believe in the tenets of ESG. But at the end of the day, it's very difficult to measure goodness. (laughs) Um, You know, like you can look at greenhouse gas emissions and, you know, there's obviously social and governance factors too. Um, But it's very difficult when you go from one thing to a score. And it's another thing to get everybody in the industry to agree on a score that matters because there's a number of competing interests um, and self-interest within the system. Um, So, I mean, my view is that, yes, ESG is here to stay. Um, I think the growth in ESG assets will continue to go higher. Um, And they will be able to engage more and have stronger voices um, in engaging with with management teams. Um, Now, a lot of this is being felt on the shareholder side, um, far more than bondholder side at this point. But um, but yes, I mean, it it is a highly, highly relevant topic. You know, we are discussing it um, internally within RGA, but just talking about it generically um, I mean, there's there's a lot of development, in my opinion, that needs to to happen um, as far as streamlining is concerned. I mean, it's there's a lot of different, um, you know, firms and agencies out there that will provide ESG ratings. But, 
you know, and people often say, well, eventually, you know, we'll kind of all kind of come together on uh, agreeing to a set of standards or means of measurement. And I think that's a, a little naive of a statement because a lot of times people will draw the conclusion that, well, the rating agencies uh, have all figured it out. So why wouldn't, uh, you know, ESG agencies figure it out? And default is a an empirically observable event, right? And so you can measure default risk through statistical means. It's very difficult to measure goodness. And that I think is is a big challenge. And you know, they'll often point to studies around um, companies who have, you know, good ESG scores and, you know, how they've outperformed, et cetera. Um, and, you know, the other side of the argument would be that, well, the firms that have outperformed uh, traditionally have been the larger ones. Therefore, they have more or more resources to devote to working with consultants to try to maximize ESG scores. And, you know, I'm not saying like game the system, but they just have more resources to devote to making their scores look better. And um, so I know that's pretty long winded. I mean, I my personal view, again, is I, I think ESG is very important and I think it's here to stay. But I think that there are a lot of challenges. Um, the ahead uh as far as uh, you know credibility is concerned quite frankly um because there are a lot of self-interested uh you know entities within the system um you know and there are even companies that will say that they're issuing green bonds and it's a phenomenon known as greenwashing where you know they'll say that hey you know we're doing this and you know we're going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions or you know whatever and then when you really look into the details it's like no really really wasn't vetted well enough so um there's 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 a lot that needs to happen yeah i want to let you know one thing is is never Mm -hmm. apologize for a long-winded answer because that was absolutely fantastic and, and i always love hearing it just kind of a it completely unfiltered just everything you know here it is out out there for you so i really appreciate that and i've got yeah. two more for you just so you know for the, the sake of time here so sure. this one's going to be a little bit i think maybe on, on the happier end instead, instead mm-hmm. of just looking at credit you know what's going wrong with the world etc you know uh, i was just curious what do you see as kind of the greatest growth industry that we'll kind of get to view in our lifetime or, or what just excites you the most as far as some tech and some markets that are that are kind of we're seeing unfold before our eyes. Oh man, that is a, that is a tough question to answer because if, if I truly had the answer, um, <laughs> we wouldn't be on this podcast. Um, if I knew what it was going to be, um, you know, there's, it's, it's very hard to say. I mean, I, I think, I think, I think any, big industry or technology, you know, in a meaningful way is always going to be addressing a big problem, right? And so, you know, when you look around us, there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues, right? Environmental, 
Okay, so, you know, there's Elon Musk and Tesla, you know, who was a pioneer in, in trying to, to go about, um, you know, addressing uh, some of the downsides of internal combustion engines. Um, you know, there are a lot of other issues in the world. And I think to the extent that industries can emerge that address them, um, they will be they will reap huge economic rewards so there's nothing in particular um that i'll kind of hold out to say that you know this is what i'm most excited about or this is what i think is the next big thing um because i the reality is i i, I just don't know <laughs> hey no worries i i'm personally a huge space fan so I know a lot of people don't like the wealth being flaunted by billionaires flying to space, but I'm all for it. I want I want to see, uh, you know, Elon <laughs> and, and Jeff push each other to Mars and beyond. I, I'm all for that competition. Uh-huh. So I, I've got I got my last question for you, and it's kind of my favorite question to ask any guest. But really, sure. just any parting advice that you have for the listeners. So if you could put yourself in the shoes of a of a grad student, or you know, maybe a freshly graduated student going into their first job, just what advice would you give someone our age? Yeah, that's easy. Um, easy and complex at the same time. So, I mean, the advice that I would give is think, think differently. Um, what I mean by that is when you, when you are early on in your career, um, you're taught to think very linearly and in black and white because all you're used to doing is taking tests and writing essays and, um, you know, thinking that the world revolves around passing the next test or there's a right or wrong answer to this question. And if you're going to do anything um, in the sphere of markets, you need to push all of that aside and you need to observe and you need to draw conclusions on your own um, and develop your own framework, your own conceptual framework as to how the world works and how markets work. And when you get to that point, and this will take years, um, but just be as intellectually curious as you possibly can be take everything at face value at first, even things that you've held dear to you that you think are, are gospel that you learned in school. Because I'll tell you that, you know, markets don't really work in very intuitive ways. You might be taught in, in school that the value of this firm is, you know, the the present sum of future, you know, cash flows uh, to shareholders which is true theoretically, but it's not going to explain to you why GameStop traded, you know, for 20 bucks a share at one point in time. And and now it's 10 times that, right? Like did the, did the firm value really increase tenfold in the span of like a year? What, what changed, right? Markets will, markets don't operate on that paradigm they operate to a completely different tune and you really have to observe with an open mind to understand relationships that will help inform where markets are headed um 
And I think a lot of that just comes from thinking, not being, and thinking is uncomfortable, right? You much, when I first started my job at Goldman, I, I took, I asked my boss, I said, where's the textbook? What can I read? You know, what can I, you know, what can I do or, you know, to, to help me? And, you know, he said, everybody asked that same question, but the reality is what you need is all here around you observe, pay attention to what's going on around you, ask people questions, um, and just fit, fit the pieces together yourself. And eventually you will, it just takes time. So you have to be patient. You have to be intellectually curious and you just have to think. And, um, and I think that's a bit of a lost art, you know, um, in, in today's society, I, I just think people like to be told what to think because it's more comfortable that way. Thinking is uncomfortable. Um, it's, it's a skill. It's, it's just like a muscle that you have to learn to, to exercise. Um, but, but once you do, you'll learn that, you know, markets are a function of liquidity, that they're a function of psychology, um, that they're a function of positioning and, and sentiment and a whole host of different things that can't be modeled by equations, but can be observed, um, through other means. And so it's, uh, it's a wild world out there. Um, but just keep learning and keep thinking. And, um, and again, the, you know, you really need to develop a mental model of how you believe the world works. And uh, it's an iterative process. I can't tell you how many times that I've thought things worked a certain way only to find a data point that completely disproved me. And I had to go back to the drawing board and I'm still learning. Um, you know, <laughs> that's, that's the other thing too. You have to be humble. You know, I've been doing this for over a decade and I'm still learning every day. And that's why I love what I do. Um, because you're constantly learning and it is, you're, you're operating in an environment that is very dynamic and what you're looking at, at that chart on your screen is the collective decisions of an entire society and, and their psychology. And, um, and it's just fascinating to me on so many levels. Absolutely. Simple, but complex. Well, from one gym to another, and, and on behalf of the listeners, I just want to thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This was an absolutely fantastic uh, podcast, so thank you so much. All right. You're if you've made it this far, thank you for listening in. If you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to the Finance Club Leadership on LinkedIn or via Wusel email. And stay up to date on podcasts or live events. Join Owen Finance Club on Wugo, LinkedIn, or WeChat.